This is Dane Holstrom, Divorce Authority. We're going to be talking about a lot of different subjects in family law. There are some important items that I'm required to share with you so that you understand the limited purpose of my going over all of this information with you. No matter what the specific topic, it's very important for you to understand that this information is not intended as legal advice for any specific person or any specific type or actual case. My sharing this information with you is not designed to create an attorney-client relationship. Everybody's case is different and nobody's results are the same. Just because we may discuss what happened in some other client's case that may in fact sound similar to yours or some other situation does not suggest that your case or the results would be the same or even similar. The discussion of specific cases are fictionalized and may not be real clients or cases. The purpose of these podcasts is to help you understand the framework of how these issues are decided, provide you a better understanding of the process, and hopefully give you insight as to how you might prepare and conduct yourself and your case to get a better result. There is absolutely no substitute for a consultation or hiring a competent, trained family law attorney. And I encourage you to seek out such an attorney as soon as practical in your case. Divorce Authority is a brand and registered trademark of Holstrom Block & Park, a professional law corporation. I've been practicing family law for 30 years. I've been certified by the state of California as a family law specialist. So I know a thing or two about divorce. I'm Dane Holstrom, and I am the Divorce Authority. Thank you for joining me for today's episode. Today we're going to talk about, are we separated? Am I separated? This is one of the most commonly misunderstood terms and topics of family law, specifically divorce and community property law, dividing stuff. Most of it is common sense, but there are some fairly strict legal requirements and some very serious traps for the unwary. There's quite a bit of legal authority in the areas of being separated. Legal authority comes from two places. It comes from the written law, we call statutory authority, and the interpretation of the written law by the courts. We call that case authority or precedential authority, as in legal precedent. Sometimes these two sources actually collide and we'll talk about when that happens in this very issue. I often get a question that starts just like the one I gave you a few minutes ago. Am I separated? There are really three different meanings of the word, my invisible quotes in the air, separated in this context. The first is the common sense one and the common colloquial interpretation, which is living apart with an intention of divorce. And it's fair to say under that interpretation, you are separated. At the same time, it is quite possible that you may not meet the test in California for living separate and apart. Yet another meaning of the phrase legal separation. And we're going to talk about the differences between those two states or meanings of the term separation. Before we go into that, however, there's another form of legal separation I want to get off the table and out of the way so as not to clutter the room. This meaning of legal separation is a totally different concept and it's called a decree of legal separation. In the form that you file to get a divorce, also called a dissolution of marriage, you get to check one of three boxes. The first one is dissolution, the next one is nullity, which means the marriage never actually occurred, it was through fraud, etc. And the other one is legal separation. It is a specialized version of sort of kind of end of your marriage in a very unique situation. It used to be used 
uh, for tactical reasons, for instance, you can file for a legal separation in California after you've been here for three months, but you can't file for divorce for six months. So, for instance, you would file for legal separation. After three months, you've been here for six now, you amend it to turn it into a divorce. It gives you a head start. Other than that, people would do it for religious reasons. I don't believe in divorce. They would do it for insurance reasons because at, in pre-Obamacare, um, the Affordable Care Act as they call it, there was a concept of pre-existing conditions that was very, very pronounced in insurance policies. As a consequence, if a, if a couple chose to get a decree of legal separation as opposed to get a decree of divorce, then of course they could stay on each other's health insurance. So the important point to understand here about a legal separation, why most people don't do it, is in order to get a legal separation, both spouses must agree to it. It cannot be granted by court order over the objection of a party. And if you go through all the way through a legal separation and you later you decide you want to remarry or stuff like that, guess what? Now you got to go through the divorce process. So it's not used very often, but it's very specialized. But that is one of the meanings of legal separation. We'll get that off the table now. Okay, so on to the concept of being separated. Under the law, being separated, that is living separate and apart under California law, is a combination of state of mind, what am I thinking, what do I feel, is the marriage really over, we call that the subjective component, and acting as though in your mind you're separated, that is the objective component, we call that a manifestation of your, of your subjective state of mind. You do something based upon what you're thinking. If you act inconsistently with your belief, then nobody's going to believe that you truly believe it. I'll get into that in more detail. Just so you understand, this means how does one of you, it only takes one of you, to have the combination of the subjective and objective at the same time. So if you've made a decision, the marriage is irretrievably over, that's the standard, and that your conduct is consistent with that, A, I move out. I file for divorce. I do a variety of other things we're going to talk about to demonstrate my subjective state of mind. That's what's required for you to be legally separated. And again, it only takes one. So if one person has made up their mind and one person has demonstrated that they're acting upon that, that triggers that you are now separated. The law of determining when somebody is legal separated has taken some pretty wild twists and turns, but it's returned back to pretty much where it started except for one major deviation from a somewhat recent Supreme Court case called Marriage of Davis, the courts have looked at the totality of the circumstances to determine if the actions of at least one of the parties, thoughts or actions, demonstrate their subjective intent that they are living separate and apart. Well, we understand the concept of finality, but let me explain to you what can go wrong with this. So in a hypothetical situation, Somebody walks out, they slam the door, and they shout, it's over, I'm done. A week later, the parties go to marriage counseling. Well, wait a second. The challenge here is that participating in marriage counseling may be an objective evidence that the marriage really wasn't over when you slammed the door and said it was. Once it is over under California law, it is over. We cannot have multiple separations there is only one last and final date of separation you can't have even if it's months or even years 
people are separated for two years, then they get back together for two weeks. When's the date of separation? The answer is at the end of the two weeks. That two years still counts as to the marriage, and we'll talk about why that's important later on. So why do we care about the exact date of separation? Well, as I describe it to most clients, it's pretty much a bright line for accounting purposes. So there's two issues in family law, community property more accurately, that you need to understand where this comes up. The first one is the overall length of the marriage. Uh, this issue is relevant to both the amount and the duration of spousal support. In California, a marriage is presumed to be of long duration if it's greater than 10 years. And if it's greater than 10 years, the court has no ability to set a termination date on spousal support. Wow. Does that mean we get spousal support forever? No, this is another common misunderstanding. It simply means it's indefinite. It means the court cannot set a date for termination for a marriage of long duration. Doesn't mean the court can't do other things. Doesn't mean they can't modify it downward. Doesn't mean they can't modify it in the future. Doesn't mean they can't terminate it in the future, just at the time of the divorce. Conversely, if a marriage is not of long duration, then the court says that the supported spouse should become self-supporting within a reasonable period of time. That is defined as one half the length of the marriage. So, the longer you stay married, the longer you receive spousal support in most cases. The second primary effect of the date of separation is the characterization and division of assets and their growth or loss of these assets during marriage or separation. Characterization. That's a term we use to describe if property is separate property or if property is community property. Separate property is property that one spouse gets to keep to themselves. Community property is typically divided equally. There are some exceptions. We may or may not get to some of those today. The law then defines and says during marriage, during the marriage, which is between the date of marriage and the, you guessed it, the magic date of separation, Every asset that is acquired is presumed to be community property. And this is exception of clearly identified exceptions like gifts and inheritance. I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of what a gift qualifies, etc., but that's for another episode. And if you earn something or acquire something after the date of separation, that is your separate property. So there's a real important understanding to have when you talk about the date of separation for some assets. So let me give you a not atypical but hypothetical scenario. So we'll go back to when you're slamming the door leaving the house and you say it's over. You then immediately go and you hire your attorney. You found one who works late on that Friday night and you pay them a bunch of money because they work late on Friday night and you start filling out papers. On Monday you go find a new apartment, you pay your first and last month's rent, you're all going towards separation and you can clearly see here we've got a, a combination of the state of mind and action. Subjective and objective together. Boom. The following week you're walking down the sidewalk and you see a dollar bill on the ground, you pick it up. Quick quiz. Is that dollar bill separate or community? Well, everything we've said says it's separate right now. You take that dollar bill and you go buy a lottery ticket. Guess what? You win $100,000 of that lottery ticket. Ah, 
Community property law says that if the dollar bill was separate property, then the lottery proceeds are separate property too. Woohoo! We're awesome. Now, you go celebrate and you go have a couple cocktails, think about your new life and where you're going and you're feeling pretty good about yourself. And then you start thinking about the good times and you miss your former spouse and you make a call. Well, the next thing you know, you're having great makeup sex. And then the next morning, you remember why you left in the first place. You go back to your attorney's office, you finish filling out the firms, and the attorney says, what was your date of separation? And you explain everything that happened with your attorney, and then you can tell by the look on your attorney's face that you may have some problems. Because there can only be one final date of separation. And while it is not uncommon for separating spouses to have makeup sex, it is quite possibly a combination of things that could cause the court to believe that your subjective state of mind for a final separation did not exist. And it was when you left the second time that is really truly the moment of separation. And as such, the dollar bill and the lottery proceeds, she may well have a claim on them. You see, this is the most important effect of the date of separation. The law says that what you receive or earn during the marriage is community property and shared equally. We talked about inheritance. We talk about a bona fide gift. But earnings, income tax refunds, gambling winnings, lottery tickets are all community property if received during marriage. This fact-intensive issue creates a great deal of litigation and disagreement over what is the date of separation. This is particularly true in hybrid situations that we'll talk about in a little bit involving business ownership, stock options, and things like that. I am truly not suggesting that any and all booty calls between ex-spouses puts them back together, i.e. not separated. It's not that simple. It's always a combination of facts and failures to act that create the totality of the circumstances. But the point to get out of this is there is only one date of separation. I've had attorneys walk into court and argue that during their period of separation that they acquired an asset and that asset is their separate property because they were separated at the time. And that's just not the law. And so there's a lot of less than competent attorneys that don't understand the nuances of this issue. There can only be one date of separation. And so, even if you're separated, like I said, there are cases that talk about separation for years. And indeed, one case I'm going to talk about in depth, where you can be separated and living apart and have a new significant other, and the court still finds that you are not living separate and apart for the purposes of this law. So remember, the date of separation is not reached until at least one of the parties. It doesn't require both. In their mind, they've realized that the marriage is completely and finally over, and they take steps to demonstrate that. If you reflect on it, and you want to do counseling, or you want to try to get back together, you want to reconcile, that's fine. But just understand that the clock resets when you last and final separation occurs. That means that if one person still is opposed to the divorce, and they don't want to end, and they, and they want the marriage to go on, does that stop the clock? No, because one person does. And as long as one person maintains that position and the demonstration of their intent, then 
the date of separation has passed. So what kind of conduct can somebody engage in that demonstrates that the marriage is really over? Well, courts in cases have typically utilized the totality of the circumstances test that I mentioned earlier, and there have been variations on how it's described, what would a judge think if he saw your conduct at the time, or different ways to measure or quantify your behavior as opposed to what you say your thoughts were. Did your conduct communicate that this marriage is over or something different? So if you close your joint bank account and you each go open a new one, what message does that send? Okay, it could be consistent with ending the relationship. But what if I added that there were other factors that didn't support the end of the relationship? In other words, maybe somebody had a judgment out um, that was being levied and the other spouse didn't want to get their money taken having a joint account. Again, all of the facts are very important to demonstrate what the meaning was behind the action. There can be really dramatic incidents, like a dramatic incident of domestic violence, where the parties are, are separate at a moment, and it's clearly identifiable. Um, clear facts, somebody basically buys a plane ticket, moves away, and never comes back. What about saying filing taxes? What if you file your taxes separately? Well, that would seem like an indication. Why? Why is because if you file when you're married separately, you actually pay more taxes. So you're doing it, it must be for a good reason. Well, what if I tell you that they did it again because somebody, the IRS was going to grab somebody's refund? Well, that might mitigate it and take it the other direction. It is very, very fact intensive. But the combination of actions that people take, moving out, getting your own place, hiring a lawyer, filing for divorce and going through with the divorce, all of these things, uh, separating your bank accounts, all of these things are the types of conduct the court looks at. Do you continue seeing your ex-spouse well, other than exchanges of the children? Do you go on vacations with your ex-spouse? Do you send your ex-spouse flowers on your anniversary? Those kinds of things are indicative of your state of mind and all can be measured by the court. Communication. It's over. It's done. I never want to get back with you again. Again, assuming you don't follow that up with flowers and an apology. So those are the kind of things that the court looks at. The more you go towards actually ending your relationship and dividing assets, the more the court will believe that you both believed that you would reach that level of separation. I'll tell you, it's something to avoid doing. Don't go to marriage counseling if you want to be separated. That is, do what you want to do, but if you want to be separated. Don't go to marriage counseling. Don't go on joint vacations. Don't take your laundry home to your ex-wife. More on that later. Don't date your spouse. Don't have sex with your spouse. Don't, don't, when given an opportunity, describe yourself as married. Simple things like that. Talk about your wife as your ex-wife or your husband as your soon-to-be ex-husband or my separated spouse or whatever. That will come back, as you'll hear in some of the cases I'm going to talk about. It was a law of California for many years that you didn't actually have to physically be separated to be separated. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, common sense kind of says that if two people, as we talked about in a prior episode about money, that sometimes people with two paychecks are barely making it in one house. So they choose that they're going to stay in the same house, live in separate rooms. They're going to argue about whose food's on which shelf and all that kind of stuff. And 
and they're going to tolerate that because they can't afford to live apart as you know, they're going to live as roommates. Well, the Supreme Court came down with this case, Davis, and frankly, most people dis- disagreed with it. In fact, the legislature disagreed with it. And it came to the conclusion that you cannot be legally separated. You cannot be living apart in the, in the meaning of the law unless you're physically living apart. And they said, therefore, you cannot live in the same house. Wow. Poor Mr. Freaking Davis found out like seven years later, you know, in the middle of his divorce that he had not been separated. Well, that was an unjust result in that case, uh, even though there were other facts that supported the decision. So the legislature came back and said, you know what? No, that's not it. You do not have to physically live apart. That's certainly one component of the analysis. Okay? And I'll talk about a case that I had that, that goes to that very point. So the test before Davis and after Davis is really the same. And that is, if the totality of the circumstances demonstrate that one of the parties had formed both the intent and acted upon that intent, then that will be the date of separation. And this new law was added to Section 70 of the Family Code in 2017, which defines the date of separation as a complete and final break in the marital relationship as evidenced by both. The spouse has expressed to the other spouse. So you can't just think it, you got to say it. Okay? And two, the conduct of the spouse is consistent with his or her intent to end the marriage. The same old subjective and objective manifestation. Again, some key benchmarks that all the courts in deciding these date of separation cases they've used are the bank account example I gave you several times, changing the beneficiary for life insurance policies. Be careful because sometimes you can't do that. Remember the automatic temporary restraining orders. Filing taxes separately instead of jointly. Certainly seeing each other. Certainly going to marriage counseling. All of those stuff is, and holding yourself out as a married couple is counter intuitive with a contention that you are already finally separated. It almost seems artificial that you would go to somebody and say, hey, this is a person that I am married to technically, but we're sort of separated, but I have to sell you that in the interest of full disclosure so I can protect my assets. Um, Hopefully it doesn't come to that. Let's talk about the cases that led to a conclusion that the parties were not separated based on real factual disputes. My favorite case in this category is a case called Marriage of, I think I'm pronouncing it right, Baragry, B-A-R-A-G-R-Y. So this is a case from the 70s. Uh, Parties had been married for approximately 15 years and had two daughters at that time, age 13 and 10. The husband was a doctor. The parties had a good life. They both loved their children, but Dr. Baragri also loved his 28-year-old employee, Karen, who was his receptionist, and he loved his sailboat. And so he left Mrs. Baragri to live on a sailboat with Karen. Well, they filed for divorce, and they went forward with the divorce, and the divorce, unfortunately, took a number of years. Everybody knew that the doctor and Karen were a couple, but the good doctor continued to be a dedicated father, not a good spouse. Dr. Baragri, every Thursday would go home for dinner. And of course, the good Mrs. Baragri would make him dinner. And while he was there, because they didn't have a washing machine on the sailboat, and Karen may not have known how to do laundry, she would wash his laundry and give it back to him and he'd go back to the boat. They took some annual vacations together. They did some other things that would indicate that there was some question about what was going on. He happened to send his wife some cards and letters wishing her well. 
and in one case even saying, I love you. Why is all of this relevant? Keep in mind, their divorce case was going on this whole time, okay? And so the clever attorney on behalf of Mrs. Braggery at the time of trial, when Mr. Braggery had made hundreds of thousands of dollars and the value of his practice had grown since the date of separation, argued to the court, they really weren't separated, Your Honor, and they had not reached that legal point of being living separate and apart because of Dr. Baragri's conduct, because it was his intent that the marriage was over and his actions that were at issue. The doctor tried to prove he was legally separated by the fact that he was openly sleeping with somebody else. And of course, that begs the question. Clearly, marital fidelity or the absence thereof is not the test for legal separation. If that were the case, then millions of couples were separated and didn't even know it. That was a joke. My apologies. All right. The trial court looked at all of the circumstances and said, the doctor wins. This is the trial court, the first level. Doctor wins. Why? Because he was doing all those things with Karen and the wife knew about it. In other words, because he was in an open relationship with Karen, it wasn't a secret, that makes him separated. And he found the debt of separation from the time he moved on to the sailboat with Karen. Well, the Court of Appeal, and this is one of the better, there are some great judges who are also great writers, and this particular appellate justice was really, really good. This is Justice Fleming, and she wrote a really well-written opinion. And the greatest line from this case is why we call this case what we call it as lawyers. And the quoting from the case, she says, the husband was presumably enjoying a captain's paradise, savoring the best of two worlds, capturing the benefits of both. Wife was furnishing all the normal wifely contributions to a marriage that husband was willing to accept, and most of the services normally furnished in a 20-year marriage. Husband was reaping the advantages of those services and may be presumed to owe part of his professional success during that four-year period to wife's social and domestic efforts on his behalf. The appellate court pointed out that on some occasions, the doctor would go to a professional function and would bring not Karen, surprise, surprise, but his wife, and he would introduce her as his wife, not the little asterisk-laden exculpatory clauses I was talking about earlier. When arriving for dinner each week, he would bring his dirty laundry, no pun intended, and he would leave with a full belly and clean shirts. So the court found that wife was not separated from her husband regardless of his extramarital relationship and the obviousness and openness of it. Kudos for that very clever and diligent lawyer representing wife at trial and at the appeal. While it's a mild distortion to shorten up the court's reasoning, I tell this case like this. If your wife is washing your dirty underwear, then you're still married. A simple test, but effective. I personally remember a case that I had many years ago where my client's prior attorney had suggested that he should stay in the house so as to facilitate a relationship between him and his children because the wife was trying to alienate them and interfere in his relationship with the kids. Not necessarily bad advice as far as it goes. The problem is the advice did not go far enough. It did not educate the client on what other issues it could create. 
And as soon as I heard the facts, I became concerned. My client was in the construction business. This was during of a construction boom. Sure enough, his business had tripled in revenue during the period of separation, and I unfortunately saw the train coming down the tracks. And based upon that, I had to prepare for the issue that was sure to come and did in fact come, where wife then claimed, aha, we were living in the same house. This was before Davis, by the way. I didn't have to worry about that. And there was no evidence in this case that these parties were working amicably at all, even though they were in the same house. They were fighting over who had the food on the third shelf of the refrigerator and who bought what food and who got to eat what food. It was nasty. They were. She was filing papers with the court alleging that he was intruding upon her privacy uh, and everything else. It, it basically, the period was a period of hell for both of them. He had a major lock on his door with a hasp like a gate and a master lock with a key. You know, all of these things. And sure enough, wife comes to trial and starts changing the story. So as we approach trial, the attorney starts arguing that it was just like Dr. Baragri. In fact, they lived in the same house. She starts alleging they had this secret sexual ongoing relationship. That, that he, she had a key to the deadbolt on his door. That, in fact, they would showed pictures of a family vacation where they took the kids uh, snowmobiling or something. And, and so it looked like it was going to be Baragri all over. Well, it all comes down to the specific facts and the equities of the situation. There wasn't the unfairness of Dr. Bragri bringing his dirty laundry home. And in our case, the court could tell that the other spouse was lying through her teeth. She was making ridiculous statements that were frankly not credible. Why do I have a hasp deadbolt that I lock if I'm going to give you a freaking key? Okay, it didn't make sense. And the malicious filings were clearly trying to capitalize on the change in the economy and not a really valid maintenance of the family relationship. His clear efforts to main de- maintain distance, remember, only one party. So his state of mind is, I want nothing to do with you. I got a lock on my door. You do not come in. You do not bother me, etc. That's enough, no matter if she says, my secret belief was that we were still going to have an intact relationship. It only has to be one person's state of mind and one person's conduct. So the testimony of my client regarding that and his reason he was in the house was to support his relationship with the children was credible. And the court made a distinction between the captain's paradise of Baragri and our case. And the court found the date of separation was years earlier. So how is this all-important date of separation meaningful in your divorce? Well, I talked earlier about the effect of specific assets. Probably the most affected is the growth of a business like I talked about. Also, it's stock, stock options, restricted stock units, present in some relationships where somebody is compensated. Those cases, however, we're going to talk about at another time and those issues because, frankly, they're a whole other episode and they're quite complex. So there's two types of cases the court looks at when they're dividing assets where the date of separation and the characterization of an asset is important. The first one is, is it an asset-based growth or is it a work sweat equity based growth? What do I mean by that? Well, the two cases that the court follows are Pereira and Van Camp. Pereira says, if the growth of the business is because of the efforts of a spouse, then the time of the efforts dictates. If a spouse works after separation and they work 60, 70, 80 hours and they grow the business three times, like my client that I talked about, 
that would be a Pereira, and the valuation increase is separate property. Conversely, band cap is when it's capital-based. What does capital mean? Capital means it's like you have money in a bank. If the $10,000 in the bank account is community property, then the interest is community property, period. And that's true whether it's earning the interest before or after separation. Why? Because the effort of a spouse has no effect on the rate of the interest. So it's this character issue in defining an asset and any changes in the value of the asset that are critical. A couple of examples. If you are a realtor and in 2008 interest rates climb several percentage points, loans are in default, and your business crumbles, you're still working 80 hours a week. Is it crumbling because of your efforts or in spite of your efforts? In other words, should that spouse be charged with the reduction in the value of the business? And the answer is no. It had little to do. Today, modernly, today, and I'm dating myself now, we'll look when we watch this episode 10 years from now, imagine you own a restaurant in March of the year 2000, and you have no outdoor seating, and suddenly COVID comes along. I don't care how hard you work, you're going down. And that's exactly what happens, and that's what happens in family law cases, is the court looks at whether the reason for the growth in the business or the decline in the business was because of the efforts of a spouse or just what was going on in the world. Not because of the efforts of a spouse, the efforts were neutral to the gain or loss that the business experienced. This is also true, we call it a reverse Pereira and a reverse Gavan Camp, depending on whether or not this is an asset that a party owns before marriage and then it increases during marriage, or whether it's an asset that is created during marriage that is then grown or depreciates after separation. And again, these are very, very um, complex and fact-intensive cases. The courts now modernly are actually trying to find a more balanced way to value and apportion business to the, both the separate property component and the community property component to more fairly divide them between the married unit, the community, and the separate spouse running or operating the business. It is important also to remember that for the purposes of community property, it is the efforts of either spouse. In other words, sometimes somebody comes in that runs a business and says, I've run my business for 25 years and my spouse has had nothing to do with it. They then think that that justifies them to get the, the business without any compensation to wife. And I have to explain to them, wife or husband, apologize for that slip of sexism there. The bottom line is, that it's the efforts of either spouse and whether it's wife running the business or husband makes no never mind the fact that the community is a partnership means the benefits and work and equity and efforts of one is true for both well there you go on am i separated i hope that helps you understand a little bit about the law i know it got a little bit complex and a little complicated and i apologize for that but there's a lot of information there as always Please locate a competent counsel to explain these as they apply to your case and test the nuances. This gives you just a taste of how it works. It's not intended to be a, a book, a playbook that you can take into court yourself and try to apply. As always, thank you for investing your time in this episode. Hope you found it informative and interesting and maybe a tiny bit fun on this one. 
If you'd like more information, please download our free ebook, Divorce 101, at divorceauthority.com or reach out to me on social media at Divorce Authority. I'm Dane Holstrom, and when I do becomes I don't, turn to Divorce Authority. That wraps up our first season. I truly hope we have a second one. Stay tuned.